0: Turn, if you would, to the 20th chapter of the book of Matthew. I think that's where we are. (laughs) ( shaving) My wife and I got back from a cruise for our anniversary. Um. It's kind of interesting, the people you randomly meet on a cruise ship. (laughs) 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 They they just happen to be there. (laughs) I told my wife I would take her on a cruise for her 60th birthday, which was in July, but that was July 2nd, and we had a wedding on July 7th. And for some reason, she thought those would interfere with each other. (laughs) I didn't think it would interfere at all if we just weren't at the wedding, but whatever. Back to the book of Matthew. Last time we met, (laughs) whenever that was, we talked about the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life, he asked. And Jesus said, well, follow the law. And he says, well, what law? And Jesus gave him some example, and he said, I've done all of that. And then Jesus said, take everything that you have and sell it and give to the poor, And it says that he walked away because he was very wealthy, and he could not get rid of his stuff. And the disciples and Jesus have a discussion about what does it mean to be rich, and how that hinders you from entering the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus finally says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And they get into a discussion about the pecking order when they get into the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see more of that today. So chapter 19 ends with the statement, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So, picking up in chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like... Remember that Jesus taught the people in parables... And most of them, not all of them, but most of them in the book of Matthew begin with the statement, the kingdom of heaven is like. He is going to teach us some bit of truth about what the kingdom is like and what life is like in the kingdom. So he uses examples that the people would have been familiar with to make a heavenly truth. So let's read through this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for her vineyards. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Easy enough. He needs workers for the day. He goes to the town center and he says, okay, you, 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 and you, come on, I'll pay you a denarius. A denarius is a typical day's labor for a day laborer. Okay? So however you want to calculate it out at modern rates for a 12-hour workday for whatever, $20 an hour, I don't know. But that's what he's offered them. It's early in the morning, I need workers, and he goes and gets them. Simple enough. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So you get the picture. 6 a.m., he hires the first group. Three hours later, he goes out and says, why are you standing here? He says, we need some more We need work. Okay, go out into the field. Now, the first group, he actually told them, I will pay you a denarius. The second, third, and fourth group, all he says, I'll pay you what's right. The last group, which is at 5 o'clock in the evening, he says, you go work in the field. He doesn't really promise them anything. So we have a denarius, we have something that is right, and why don't you just go work in the field? That's the picture. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour, that would be about five o'clock in the afternoon, at the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, a day's wages for one hour of work. That's what they got. You can imagine their excitement when they realized that they had made a day's wages for one hour of work. We could have a long discussion about whether they were grateful, whether they figured they had pulled you know, the wool over the guy's eyes, or something. It doesn't matter. He was paid, they were paid a full day's labor. Hmm. And when those hired about the 11th hour each received an heiress, and when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a da- dairy. So, you get the picture, right? Six o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, noon, three, five. This group comes, they get paid a day's wages. This group down here is watching this whole thing. Wow! They got paid I've been here 11 hours more than they've been here. If they got paid a denarius, I should get 11 times as much. That's what I should get. And they didn't. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Why would they grumble? Because it wasn't fair. It isn't fair that you give a day's labor to the guy who only worked an hour. They grumbled at the master of the house saying, "These last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat." But he, the master, replied to one of them, to one of them, "Friend, I am doing you no harm. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go." I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. How did we end chapter 19? But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a repetition. They swapped the clauses, but it is a repetition of the same thing. So, question, is it fair that the master paid the workers who worked one hour the same thing that he paid those who worked 12? The ones that worked 12 had been there during the heat of the day. They had worked hard all day long, and they got the same reward that the one who had only worked one We would look at that and go, this isn't fair. There's something wrong with this picture. But remember, Jesus is trying to teach us a secret, a truth about the kingdom of heaven. What is that truth? I might add, as an economic system, this doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. I mean, I'm not even sure if it's legal these days, but I'm not going to go there. It doesn't make economic sense because as a master, I would want to get the labor as cheap as I could get it. I want to be fair. I want to be an honest employer. But I'm not going to overpay people if I don't have to. If there's no law that says I have to overpay, why would I do that? And that's what the ones who worked all day long wanted to know. And the master turns to them and says, why are you angry? We had a deal. You and I had an agreement, and that is you work all day and I pay you a day's labor. Why do you begrudge me? Because I want to show generosity to those who worked less. What is the secret of the kingdom? Number one, God gets to give out the rewards. God gets to distribute the rewards. God is the master. And we are the laborers in the field. Some of us have worked a lot in the heat of the day. Some of us have had difficulties in our lives that made it hard to be faithful to following after Christ, to following after God. And at the end of the day, what are we going to get? We're going to get what God has promised us, which is salvation. I mean, let's look at the easiest example, okay? I walked down the aisle in our good Baptist church that I grew up in when I was probably six and accepted Christ. I was baptized the next week. That was a long time ago. Let's say that hadn't happened. Let's say that I'm 80 years old and I accept Christ and miraculously, it would be a miracle, I die the next day. Okay? I just die the next day. I was a believer for one day. What would my reward be? Eternal life. Jesus Is hanging on the cross. Thief, thief. One of them says, Remember me when you get into paradise. And Jesus tells him, Today you will be with me in paradise. What has this thief ever done for the kingdom of heaven? How much money has he given to good causes? How many times has he shared the gospel? How many good works has he done? None. But he believed in Jesus, and that was enough. What is this passage telling us? Jesus, God, gets to distribute the rewards. According to what? His generosity. But what's the real point of all this? We like to grumble. We like to mumble and groan that we're not getting our fair share. We want to complain. The moment that we see someone who has something that we don't have, we go to God and say, this isn't right. And I kept using the word fair, even though I hate the word fair. Why do I hate the word fair? Because it's exceptionally nebulous. What does it mean? Well, I give one child a dollar, I give another child a dollar. That's fair, I guess. Why did I have to give either child a daughter? I mean, either child a dollar. Okay? I, I did it out of generosity, We look at God and we think whatever it is that God gives good to somebody he has to give it to me. And guess what? God doesn't work that way because God is working toward your holiness and toward your salvation and what it is that takes for you to get there well, that's in God's control. The laborers complained or the laborers rejoiced but the reality is the master distributes it according to his good pleasure what should we learn from this don't complain don't don't complain to god and say i didn't give my fair share when you got exactly what god promised you you would get you did. It's as if we begin to believe that God's salvation is not enough. It's like we want to think, okay, if he gave me salvation when I became a believer at six and somebody else became a believer at 80, I'm getting robbed. I should get twice as much salvation. (laughs) What does that even mean? But that's what we believe. That's what we expect. What we really expect is for God to chastise that person for waiting so long. Come on, swat him a few times. Just for grins. But we grumble. We grumble, grumble, grumble. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with, with me for a Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose. This is the sovereign providence of God where God chooses the rewards that he will distribute to us. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Is God not allowed to do what God wants to do? But you know what? We want to complain about it. We do. Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? And we're going to have a little bit more about that in just a moment. Because even at this point, the disciples have not figured that out. They really haven't. I mean, we are five verses away from them arguing again about who gets to be top dog. They just don't ever stop. Guess what? Neither do we. We just really want to know where we are in the pecking order. And here he says, "...the first will be last and the last will be first." And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. This is at least the third time that he has told them directly this is what's going to happen. There's actually a little more detail in this one where he says, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, they're going to flog me, they're going to beat me, and then they're going to kill me. He keeps telling them, I'm not totally convinced they truly understand. It is interesting, it says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're looking at a map, they're north of Jerusalem. So generally, we would talk about going up, going north and going down on the map being south. But you never went down to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem, wherever you were in Israel. First off, it's at an elevation. But secondly, it is the most important location in the nation. So you always went up to Jerusalem. Now, what we're going to find next week when we start chapter 21 we're going to be dealing with his week in Jerusalem. The next, whatever it is, seven or eight chapters are all about his final week in Jerusalem. And then the last chapter of the book actually deals with the resurrection. So we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to sit there for a while as we work through the Passion Week. He is on his way to Jerusalem. We've had this discussion before, And just to remind ourselves, he goes off into the boondocks, you know, the other side of the Jordan River or Samaria or someplace else, and he works his miracles and he tells the people, go tell everybody what I did. But when he's in Israel and he performed a miracle, as a general rule, he would tell them, don't tell anybody because his time wasn't right yet. Well, his time is right now. It is time for him to go to Jerusalem one more time. And that's where he's going. That's where he's going. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. He is describing exactly what's going to happen to him. The scribes and the Pharisees who have been after him since the beginning of his ministry. Why? They are jealous, true. They don't like the fact that he is getting the influence of the people and they're losing it. They don't like his message. They don't like his ministry. And they're going to get rid of him. That's their plan. And it's going to work for about three days. Hand over the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. But you know that in the Uh, Israel at the time in the promised land, the Romans were in charge, and so the Romans were the only ones who could execute somebody. So they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He even gets to the point where he tells them how he is going to die. Now, we've had this exact same discussion over and over again. What do you think they're thinking? Okay? They want a Messiah. They want him to come. They want him to rule. They want to be the sidekicks of the ruler. And here he is talking about being mocked, flogged, and then crucified. Probably one of the cruelest forms of execution ever devised. I've read of some worse ones, but... This one is pretty bad. We'll talk about that more later. Now, as an aside, it says, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be executed, to be crucified. Who is it? This is not a trick question, but don't answer it. Who is it that killed Jesus? I know that in church history there was a long time where we blamed the Jewish community for killing Jesus. They were the ones, they were responsible for his blood, let's go kill him. It doesn't say here that the Jews killed him. It says that the Gentiles killed him. By the way, most of us are Gentiles. But who was it that killed Jesus. More on that in just a moment. And he will be raised on the third day. Remember, he has told them about the sign of Jonah. You're going to put me in the ground in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days, and then as Jonah came back, I'm going to come back. Now, as we said the last time we covered one of these passages... The disciples fully understand death. Okay? All of us are old enough to understand death. They don't understand resurrections. Now, I believe they're beginning to understand it though because they have seen Him do it. They have seen Him speak to a dead person and that dead person come back. They're in on the secret but I'm still not convinced they understand what's going to happen. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Good old Jewish mother, (laughs) not a Jewish mother, any mother, any mother in the world wants to watch out for her kids and make sure they get what they deserve, right? No, they get more than what they deserve. I know what my kids deserve, so I want them to have more than that. There is some speculation about whether this was the mother's idea or whether it was the son's idea and they told their mother go ask Jesus because hey who can deny a mother right so she comes to Jesus and she bows down and she says when you enter the kingdom when you become king of the world when you occupy David's throne when you're sitting on the throne in Jerusalem Can one of my boys sit on one side of you and the other one sit on the the other side? One on the right, one on the left. Because you know, right, in a good dinner party, no, not a dinner party, in a good throne room, proximity to the throne demonstrates how much power you have. Okay, my closest advisor is here. His buddy's here, the next advisor here, the next advisor here, and the guy I don't like is sitting down at the end of the aisle. Maybe it is a dinner party. I want my sons to be here and here. Now, this is pure speculation on my part, but I suspect that if he had said yes, the two brothers would have killed each other to find out which one was on the right and which one was on the left. Because the right hand is the most important place. Yes? Well, yeah. Her observation was, isn't it interesting she didn't ask for herself? She's asking on behalf of her boys. Okay? I suspect she thought there'd be in it something in it for her. Huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, you've you got to say, right? You know? There's my boy sitting on his right. And the one on the left? That's my boy, too. I mean... Bragging rights forever. Okay? It's a good mother, right? What's wrong with this? We're back to the same problem. Who's going to be top dog? (sighs) Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He looks at the two boys, and he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to do what I'm about to do? Now, in their brashness, in their, I don't know, stupidity, they say to him, we are able. Sure, whatever you can do, I can do better. That's what they're saying. I mean, you know, these are the same disciples who are going to tell him, we're never going to leave you, no matter what happens. We're going to be with you till the end. And by golly, as soon as the week is over, they're going to be running back to their boats to be fishermen. But you got to give them some points. They at least said, sure. They didn't ask what it was. They said, sure, whatever it is, we're with you. And then he said to them, oh, they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. It is interesting to me because I know, well, I suspect that Jesus is a little ticked off at them because they still haven't figured it out. But I also suspect when he said this sentence... He was kind of sad because he knew it was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen to these boys. He knew what was going to happen to the 12 disciples. Judas is going to kill himself. More on that much later. What's going to happen to the other 11? I'll tell you what's going to happen to the other 11. This one's going to get executed. 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 This one they're going to try to execute him, but it's not going to work. So they're going to stick him on a rock of an island and he's going to write the book of Revelation. Are they going to drink the cup? Yes. Yes. Do they know what that means right now? No. What's going to make the difference? I'm going to die, and in three days, I am going to be raised from the dead. The moment they see the resurrected Lord, they know who wins. They know who wins the battle. And at that point, Every one of them is willing to be obedient unto death. And he looks at them and he knows this. You are going to drink the cup. <sighs> but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Go back to the parable. Who gets to distribute the rewards? God. God gets to choose who's on the right. God gets to choose who's on the left. God gets to distribute the rewards. This is not for you to decide. It's interesting he even says it's really not for me to decide. It's for God the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were ticked off. They were indignant at the two brothers. Once again, there's some speculation in the commentaries whether they were ticked off because they hadn't thought of it first. You know? Why didn't we think of sending our mothers to Jesus to ask him? Or they were just ticked off because they wanted to be at the top of the pecking order. Either way, they were ticked off. They were indignant, but Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." You know that in the real world, people are always fighting. This is Jesus talking to them. Fighting to be the top dog. Here's the ruler. Here's his closest advisor. Next closest advisor. Next closest advisor. Dot, 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 dot. The guy who's out in the woods. Everybody wants to see how they can move up the pecking order, how they can get closer to the person that's in power, because that demonstrates, and Jesus says, we'll have none of that. That is what, that is what the rulers of the Gentiles do. We have a different, a different perspective about what is important and what's not. It will not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. How do we demonstrate in the everyday life that we are following after Christ by being a servant? Why do we have trouble being a servant? Because it's so servantish. <laughs> I mean, I may be willing to work for the kingdom as long as I get to call the shots, I get to determine what I do, and everybody knows that I'm doing it. I want people to know, oh, oh he's doing great things for the kingdom. But to be a servant, means that in the eyes of the world, you have no authority. And we don't like that. I mean, I don't mind being a servant if everybody knows that I'm in charge while I'm doing it. (laughs) Richard Foster, who wrote his book about spiritual disciplines, talks about that. He says, we want to be a servant who's in control. And that's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. But that's what we want. Yeah, I'll help you do your religious thing as long as I get the glory. And Jesus says, no. You want to be first. Go find someone and help them. But wait a minute. If I'm really a servant, who's going to know? God. (laughs) Do you remember back months ago when we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by men because if you do them to be seen by men, you will receive a reward, but it will be a reward from men. But rather, do your acts of righteousness in secret. Remember the discussion? When you pray, go hide in your closet When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you fast, don't look like you're dying. Just act like a normal person. Don't let people know. And then your heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So here's the bottom line. Do we have the faith to believe that God's rewards are better than the rewards of this world. And that's what he's telling them here. You want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. Well, I don't want to be a servant. Jesus will demonstrate this in his last week at the Last Supper, where he washes the disciples' feet. The person washing the feet is the lowest servant of the lowest servants. I mean, you're walking around in sandals, the the, uh, streets are filthy, not only do you have the dirt and the dust, you have all the droppings from all the animals, and you get to a person's house and your feet stink. So a servant would be there to wash your feet, to clean them off. And Jesus does that job for the disciples. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man, and here it is, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He has been talking about his death. He has been talking about being handed over to the Gentiles, being killed, and being raised from the dead. He has not really spent a lot of time talking about why. Why is this happening? Why am I doing this? What is the purpose of my death? And he tells them right here my death is going to be a ransom for many people. What is a ransom? Somebody kidnaps you, and they offer to give you back for some sum of money. You buy them back from their captivity. One of my favorite short stories, O. Henry, The Ransom of Red Chief. Any of you all ever read it? If you haven't, you ought to go home and read it. It's short. It's probably online somewhere. These bad guys kidnap this uh, rich guy's grandson to hold him for ransom. To make a long story short, at the end, the grandfather says, if you pay me money, I'll take him back. (laughs) And they willingly pay the money. (laughs) The people of this time would have been very aware of what a ransom was. It's a time of war. People get captured. Those who are captured are sent to slavery unless there's somebody who can ransom them back. I incur great debts. I am sold into slavery unless there is someone who can buy me back. Now, here is all of the New Testament theology in a nutshell. Who has us in captivity? Why do we need to be ransomed? We have sinned, our sin has put us into captivity. We can pretend that we can work our way out. If I just work harder, I can, but we can't do that. Because there's a price that has to be paid for the sins that we have committed. And we are incapable of paying that price. Someone has to pay that price for us. I'm sitting there working on the galley ship of the Roman Empire. I am sitting at an oar rowing day after day because I was captured. I will never, ever earn enough rowing that boat to buy my freedom. Someone has to ransom me. Someone has to come to the captain of that ship and say, Here's the payment to set me free. That's where we are apart from God. That's where we are in our sin nature, in our unregenerated state. We are without hope unless someone pays the ransom. We need to remember that. Why is it that we who labor in the field during the heat of the day grumble against God? Because we don't realize that we were captured, we were captive, to sin, and Christ, God, redeemed us. So we grumble. But I want more. I want to sit on the right hand. I'm going to send my mother to talk to you. Because nobody would deny my mother or something, right? We don't realize our condition apart from God even as the Son of Man came not to be served. I mean, let's just look at that at one level, okay? Jesus, God. Jesus is God. He is in heaven. The angels attend to him as if he had any needs. Why did he come to earth? Because he needed our puny efforts To serve him, he came to serve us. Why do we serve other people? Because Christ demonstrated that lifestyle to us. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, I'm going to open a can of worms and then I'm going to run away very quickly (laughs) and we're going to finish the chapter. But I do want you to have an interesting viewpoint of theology. If you look at um, what today we would call Calvinism, and by the way, I'm not a Calvinist, Many of you think that I am because I'm more of a Calvinist than you are, okay? And I'll, I'll accept that any day, okay? In Calvinism, there are what we refer to as the five points of Calvinism, which were really the five points that were a rebuttal to the five points of Arminian, James Arminius. So they're not really... Intended to be a full theological discussion, but we usually remember them. And we usually remember them by the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Well, the thing that separates the real Calvinist from the rest of us is that middle one, the L. And the middle one is limited atonement. If you really are curious, it's total depravity. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Those are the five points. So if you meet a hardcore Calvinist, and I have, and I've had them come up to me, and here's the first question out of their mouth. I'm not making this up. When did you start believing in limited atonement? Well, I don't. Oh, I blew it right there. The question is this, atonement. We talk about the day of atonement. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, sacrifices the animal for the sins of the people. He slices the throat, the blood comes out. Who is that blood for? What is the extent of that atonement And the question that is debated in Calvinist versus Arminian circles, and most of you, by the way, whether you'll admit it or not, are Arminians. The discussion is, did Jesus' blood pay the price for all the sins of all the world, or did it pay the sins for those who were chosen? Is it limited to those who God had chosen. What does this passage say? And he gave his life as a ransom for many. It doesn't say all. It says many. Now, we go back to John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed. Who did he die for? The world. Who does this say that his blood... The many. Now we can work this out either way. Okay, the Calvinist would look at John three sixteen. And it says, "Whosoever believes." Who's going to believe? The ones that God calls to believe. The Arminian can look at this passage and acknowledge the fact that yes, His blood is going to save many, but it could save all who chose. Just an aside. I'm kind of on the fence on that one, okay? Hello, Van. Hello, how are you? Very good. (laughs) And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Nobody had any questions about that. That was really bizarre. He wants the five again? Total depravity. You are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Unconditional election. If you're going to be saved, it's going to be because of something God did. Limited atonement. His blood was shed for those who were called. Irresistible grace. If you have been called, you will respond to the gospel. Perseverance of the saints. If you are one of the elect and you have become a believer, you will persevere to the end. I was actually raised a three-point Calvinist. Okay? I do believe that you are in sin and cannot save yourself. I believe that it's going to be a work of God. And I do believe that if you are saved, you will stay in the faith and remain saved. A good Calvinist would say you can't be a three. You either have to ball you. Anyway, that's where all the debates go. And I have participated in those debates, and they're fun, okay, but they're just debates. I believe his his question is, "What is my conclusion for myself in all of this?" I believe that we go to the world and we share the gospel with everyone, and we can do that with the confidence that if they believe, the blood of Jesus Christ will save them, or the blood of Jesus Christ saves them and they believe. Whichever way you want. The question is, who's going to respond? And at some point, I acknowledge the fact that God has to work in their lives. Okay? Now, the extent of that, I will argue at length. In the sense that, you know, does God call everyone in some form or fashion and some reject and some accept? That's the Arminian position. Does God actually call as in the Holy Spirit goes into the hearts of some and drags them into the kingdom? I could go with that, too. My bottom line is this. Salvation begins with God. And God is going to work a miracle in people's lives in order to save them. And when we get to heaven, we'll figure all that stuff out. I mean, there's an old, it's not a joke, it's, a, it's a, just an interesting comment that people have someplace. You're walking up to the kingdom of heaven, and the gate says, whosoever will may come. And that is a true statement. And you get on this side, and you look at the back of the gate, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And that's a true statement. If we sit on this side thinking, am I one of the chosen? I don't know. Am I? You will wear your brain to death. What does God say? Respond to the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, hardcore Calvinist. He used to say, God save the elect and then elect some more. I am square in the middle. I am as in the middle as I can possibly be. (laughs) No, I am. I am. Okay. As I said, I do believe that it is a work of God. I do believe that God initiates salvation which tends to put me on the Calvinist side. But I do believe that we share the gospel to everyone, and we pray that they will accept. So I acknowledge that the Arminian position has scriptural backing, and I acknowledge that the Calvinist position has scriptural backing. Neither one of them, in my opinion, are heresy. I mean, if you really want to get into it, You can go over here and become a Pelagian, and that's heresy. That idea that I can somehow save myself, that through my works or something, that's heresy. The difference between Arminian and I don't want to belittle it, because there are people who go to great lengths to talk about it, and I've read both of them, and I like both of them. So I plant myself firmly in the middle. That's what I said. I'm more Calvinist than most of y'all but I've hung around real Calvinists and I'm not over there either, okay? But that's fine. I'm comfortable with that because both of them I believe you can make a scriptural foundation for. That's why when I teach Romans chapter 9, I teach predestination because by golly, that's what Romans chapter 9 teaches. But I also recognize that there's other verses that say God in his foreknowledge shows us. Anyway, go ahead. I've really lost it here. Uh, unconditional election. If God, it's, God's going to move first. Right. Yes. And it's all moved if we're not out there teaching the gospel. Yeah. That's the baseline. Yeah. If we're not evangelizing, the whole discussion is just discussion. Right. And that's what I said. If we are called to go everywhere and share the gospel message. That's what we're called to do as an act of obedience. But we really have in our mind oh, well, I've got to go find the elect and share the gospel. We don't know who they are. There's no s- big E stamped on their head, I'm the elect, share the gospel with me. It's all God. It's all God. And that is, to me, the bottom line. God is going to save us. And the particular of it, I can explain them all to you. And they're like I said, I think there's some value in studying it. I don't want to belittle it because it's important. We're called to share the gospel. You know, people complain that the Calvinists don't practice evangelism, which is just hooey. Okay? Uh, D. James Kennedy, who invented evangelism explosion, had to write a book to defend the fact that he was a Calvinist because people said, he said, people don't believe me. Why do we do it? Because God tells us to do it. God tells us to share the gospel with everyone. Our problem is we sit at home and have our theological discussions, and tomorrow we don't go out and serve and share the gospel. That's the bottom line. And then what do we do? We grumble because God's not giving us more of what we want. We're going to finish this chapter, though. And we have minus three minutes. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be quiet. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Why in the world would the crowd tell them to shut up? I mean, they were just annoying him, Right? Hey, we're trying to listen to the master, and all of you are doing is yelling at him because you don't be like the crowd. Don't be like the crowd who are trying to keep people away from Jesus. We would never do that. Of course, we would. (laughs) We talked a while ago about not liking to be a servant. Because it's so servantish. And guess what? Being a servant means that there's somebody with a need that we can meet. But you know, the problem with needy people, they're so needy. And that irritates us. It would be so easy to be a servant. if there were nobody, there wasn't anybody that had needs. Then I could sit there and go, yes, I'm the greatest servant of all, and I don't have to do anything. And here this guy is, two guys, and they're yelling at Jesus, hey, over here, over here. And Jesus comes and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Simplest question possible. And it says they ask exactly what they needed. We want our sight. And out of pity, Jesus gave them their sight. Observation. Why does God save us? Out of love? Yes. Out of pity for us? Yes. Do we like that? No. Why do we not like that? Because we want to be in control. And guess what? We're not in control. So what's the conclusion of all of this? Don't grumble. Don't look at where you are in the pecking order. But there's one more point. Remember a while ago we were talking? I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to crucify me. And I asked the question, who was it that killed Jesus? The first answer is, Nobody did it to him. He volunteered for it. It was God's plan, but even more than that, what did he say? I came to serve and to give, to give my life as a ransom for many. Nobody forced him into doing it. Wait a minute, didn't the Father? No. Jesus said, if it's possible, we'll get to this later. If it's possible, let's go to plan B. But not my will, thy will be done. Who is it that killed Jesus? Our sins are what drove Jesus to pay the price to be the ransom buy us out of captivity. That's the bottom line of all of this. And the moment we begin to think that I'm the top dog, I'm going to grumble when you don't treat me like the top dog. I'm going to begin to think I'm the top dog, and I'm going to work at making sure everybody knows I'm the top dog. And Jesus comes and says, I didn't come that way, and you don't come that way. And my argument would be this. The disciples don't get that at this point. But there's going to come a time when they're going to get it. And they will be willing to die for the resurrected Lord. And they will willingly choose to do it. So we don't blame the Jews for killing Jesus. We don't blame the Romans for killing Jesus. Jesus gave himself. Because of the guilt of our sins. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us. Thank you for the gift of that salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we would strive to be like Jesus and be the servants of all. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.